I was working with people with disabilities for a while before I realized it. I just thought, mm-hmm. oh, this is a job that makes more than McDonald's and I'm good at it. Great. Um, and then as time went on, my mom is like, do you remember when you were five and you helped your aunt who was blind? And it kind of clicked as a realization that this is something that I do and I'm good at it because I like it. And I have a passion, not just I'm good at it. Hey folks, that's Meta. Welcome back to Alter Guild. This season we're thinking about the layers of our identities, the multitude of ways we are formed as unique and beloved in this life. This week I offer a conversation with Isha Caldwell. She's a navigator for Mental Health Connect, which is a ministry that helps people find mental health treatments, resources, support, and education in the Twin Cities. It's supported by a collaboration of local interfaith congregations. As a navigator, Isha works with people seeking access to services in what can be a really confusing and complex system. She's also enrolled in a degree program that focuses on the relationship between mental health and substance use. I love that you're you're a navigator. You help people navigate systems yeah. and you accompany people. You walk alongside of them and you have that image in your childhood where you, you did that with your aunt yeah. long before you were thinking about what would pay the bills or who you were going to become. Yeah, now that you say that, it is kind of like a kind of full circle I guess in a in a metaphoric kind of way where I do walk alongside people and I empathize with them that's a a big piece of what I do and empathy can be taxing sometimes on the mind and the body but it's worth it to help that person and be with that person in the space that they're in we're talking about empathy a lot in culture right now and trying to push it back into the public square because we feel like it's not out there right now. But I still run into people all the time who need it defined and they need Mm -hmm. concrete examples of what empathy is. Can you give me your definition of empathy and tell me a story or two about how you see empathy at play? Yeah, I've been doing um, a lot of research around empathy and I guess my best... um, my best example, I actually read this uh, pieces of this in an article, and it's not quoted verbatim, but um, empathy is where you are not only feeling the emotions of the person, but you are slightly and gently nudging yourself into a space that a person is in, it's almost like for a visual, let's say you're in a really small closet. A person is in a really small closet and they're feeling however they're feeling and you just gently massage your way into that closet with them in the holes, in the spaces that are available and you sit there with them. It's not always you have to say anything, it's just the being there, the support, the feeling, the understanding of the emotions. That was so refreshing to hear you say that you are nudging and massaging yourself into that space because our first instinct so often is to change or fix someone else. 
and to tell them to buck up or stop crying or um, stand up or brush yourself off. I can you tell I have small kids with those examples, (laughs) (laughs) but we want we want them to be okay without having to to feel or change anything ourselves. There's a lot of uh, defenses that go up to protect ourselves from feeling what other people are feeling and that image of changing your own shape to be next to someone is really counterintuitive. And a lot of people don't want to be empathic because, and they want people to kind of pull themselves up from their bootstraps and do that type of thing because it's hurtful for me to watch them be in that space. And so I'm being selfish by telling them that they need to get their selves together, just brush it off because I don't want to watch them be in that space. Right. You're making me uncomfortable and I need this to stop. So exactly. Figure it out. And I think because of the way I grew up with my mom, she is a good listener when she's ready to listen. (laughs) But when she's ready to listen, she's actively listening which is something that people don't learn. And it's not like, oh, I'm going to fix you. I don't know how to fix. You're you're not broken. There's something Mm -hmm. that's maybe hurt or damaged, but it's not broken. A human being is not broken to be fixed, especially Mm -hmm. emotionally. And my mom has taught me that active listening and just even if you don't know what to say sometimes in those spaces, you're there and you're saying, you know what? Even if I don't know exactly how you feel, I'm here to be ready to understand and listen and learn. We both know that this is hard work, loving the world like this. Empathy and active listening with people can be exhausting. It can be hard to share pain while also trying to be healthy yourself. I asked Isha what this tender routine looks like in her work and life. It looks like a big piece of me Hmm. it looks like me offering my arm for someone's emotion Hmm. it looks like me going home and processing their emotions after I've left that space because I didn't want to either impact how they're already feeling by adding my stuff onto theirs but I still have to process it looks like them leaving and feeling like they were at least heard Mm -hmm. and like your feelings got a little bit tangled up with theirs do you feel like you're you're unraveling those those threads when you go home and process I feel like I try to unravel them but I'm often not successful Mm. And a lot of people that I know in this field who are passionate about it are not successful. Mm -hmm. And even if you work hard to have a good work-life balance, you still may not be successful with completely unraveling those threads. I don't even know if that's possible because every experience impacts people and you're going to take even a little piece of that with you and carry it for however long, even if it's in the back of your mind, so I don't know if, if, if it's even possible to unravel at the end of the day completely. And that maybe that's not the point, but the point is how do I, how do I take care of myself in this work? Right, and be healthy so I can continue to 
do the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the the point is to say, yep, I'm going to go home and be healthy mm-hmm. or, or get in my car and be healthy mm-hmm. or take a walk, however that looks for each mm-hmm. individual. Many people get involved in healing and helping work because they love people. Often the bigger challenge is these damn systems that can get in the way. Isha reminded me that they are not broken. This is not accidental. Many of our society's systems are fixed, intentionally making it harder for some to receive what they need. Isha says she's always known this to be true, but her work as a navigator means she constantly engages these fixed systems and the damage they can do. We just talked about this recently about someone going into treatment. So I'm in a co-occurring degree program, so that means mental health and substance use together. Almost like thread or yarn is woven together, those two entities going together hand in hand, not one is primary and one is secondary. But in a lot of treatment facilities, that's how they are viewed. You cannot be taken into a treatment facility unless substance use is your primary diagnosis. And I asked one of the providers, I said, well, how do you know that this is primary and this is secondary if they are showing their faces at the same time? And she couldn't give me an answer. Like she walked around in a circle and I'm like, okay, but that's not the question. And she ultimately just said, well, I don't really know what you're asking then. And I kind of let it go after that, but that's just to show you that the systems for treatment, the systems for resources, for like a lot of different things are not working for the people that we are supposed to be serving. Who are they working for? Yeah, it's almost like they don't want them to work for anyone. Yeah, they're easier to cut that way. (laughs) Yeah, especially with (laughs) mental health, it seems like they don't want the systems to work, they just wanna outcast these people. They want them to just go away, go be in a space where we don't have to see you. And then the normal, quote unquote, normal people can live happily. We don't have to see this part of society. And that's what we did for generations, right? We locked up people dealing with mental illness. And institutions. Yes, and other systems. And now it seems like they're doing that same thing in a different way. By not making treatment accessible or easily accessible. Isha's work in the collaborative is blessed by her background in several congregations, non-denominational, Zion AME, and now a Baptist church since moving to Minnesota. She's been talking to her pastor about the ways their ministry is supporting the intersection between spiritual health and mental health. And he and I talk so much about the stigma in the black community around mental health and why we're so afraid of it. And a lot of people say that mental health has stigma because people don't want to talk about it. But I think in our community, we'll talk about it. We'll joke about it, you know. But when it actually comes to getting treatment or getting help or things like that, that's when it's, oh, no, 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 I'm not crazy. I don't need help. You know, I'm just talking. Mm Mm-hmm. And that part is difficult for me because 
I see family members and friends either dealing with mental health or substance abuse or both. And I want the best for them, but they're not ready. They could be 65 and not be ready. And I'm like, well, why do you want to continue living this, this quality of life, which I think is not quality? Why don't you just want to get treatment? But because of the era that they grew up in or because of what society looks like now, they don't want to be labeled. Mm-hmm. So they are so insistent on keeping the life that they have instead of being labeled. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. There are already plenty of labels. Right. And I guess I don't... I. I don't care about labels. I'm not saying that I don't identify myself with labels because I do. But if someone else wants to label me, I don't know if that would stop me from wanting to be healthy. Because I guess people who have cancer, they don't they don't say, well, I don't want to be labeled with cancer. So I'm not going to go get help or people that have other medical conditions. So why is this different? This is a medical condition. Why is it? Why is it different? Yeah, the things that we choose over and against being healthy and being worthy of that kind of support and mending. Right. I think in the churches that and faith communities that I've grown up in, you said that you feel like people in your community are are willing to talk. I think that people in the faith communities I come from are not willing to talk about it when it's about themselves. Right. They can talk about their friend or their person mm-hmm. or their family member. Um, but there's a lot of fear that if I talk, maybe no one will listen. Maybe that will be the end of the conversation instead of the beginning of the conversation. And... Um, And so they're keeping it to themselves out of fear and shame that they won't be worth being heard, that that will be an ending instead of a beginning. Like an ending of a relationship or an ending of a, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I think we talk about it about ourselves, but then when it comes to addressing it, I think that's where the hiccup comes in because... I can talk about myself all day and I'm just joking. It's just mm-hmm. a joke. Yeah, I'm just self-diagnosing. It's not real. It's not written it's down not anywhere. Real. Exactly. <laughs> but then when it comes to getting help and I say, oh, well, aunt such and such, this sounds like you really need to go get, you know, checked out or you need to go see if someone can help you with that or help you manage that. Oh, no, child, I was just, you know, I'm just playing. But you're not. <laughs> You're not playing at all. Yeah. You're really actively talking about this. And it's almost like they want to be heard, but then they want to be heard and they want to get help. But then when you actually offer the help, then anxiety floods up and then they back out of it. I don't know why we are willing to be crushed by crisis again and again, to speak up, but then to refuse help to choose the misery of illness over and against the unknown of support. But I've done it. We've all done it. 
I'm guessing you can relate to this in between that Isha describes of knowing you need something and not being ready to receive it just yet. We can't make other people be ready, but we can be a different kind of system for when they are. We can be a healed system that refuses to isolate people in their mental illness, that holds space for them to show up vulnerably, that teaches us how to practice empathy instead of demanding that others get it together. There are plenty of good reasons people are weary of trusting the church and its leaders, but stigmatizing mental health doesn't have to be one of them. This is one thing we were talking about. We have a psychotherapist in our congregation. She offers like really pro bono, low bono. Like <laughs> that's what I like to call it. Cause it's like not even on the sliding fee scale. The sliding fee scale is way up high and she's way down here. But she offers therapy um, to people in the congregation, people outside of the congregation. But he told us, he said, yes, I provide the religious and spiritual therapy. He said spiritual therapy. But if they start leaning into the area that I don't know, I'm going to send them over there. Mm -hmm. Because I want them to get what they need from the person who's trained to do that. He said, I'm trained to be a spiritual guidance person Mm -hmm. she is trained to help you with your mental health Mm -hmm. help you with those type of things and she said the same thing she said yep once they start leaning into the spirituality I'm gonna send them where they need to go if they need to have a session with both of us together we can do that but that's something that they're understanding Mm -hmm. and you don't have to be all things to all people when you're a leader or a professional you can't be you're doing the people that you lead a disservice right and what's better than having a pastor you can go and talk to having a pastor and a psychotherapist you can go talk to like make the village bigger exactly and trust each other to kind of weave this web of support around a person that can get at the fullness of who they are Stigma looks different for different people. Mm. A lot of people are thinking, like I said before, that, oh, the stigma arises because people want to, don't want to talk about it. But I think stigma can look very differently. And once we accept that other people can feel stigmatized in different ways, even if a professional does or says something that could be stigmatizing to someone they don't even know, we need to be fighting against those things and making sure that we're trying to be aware of how we are in certain spaces Mm -hmm. with certain people. And remembering that not everybody's depression looks the same way. Exactly. And just because you know one or two people living with bipolar disorder doesn't mean you know the full spectrum of how that can look and how that can feel for people. I, I think it's really scary to share a diagnosis with someone because it could be the end of the conversation because they looked it up on Wikipedia and now they know more about it than you do. (laughs) Or they feel like they can diagnose their family. Let me tell you a funny story. This is unrelated to mental health, but (laughs) it is related to diagnosis. (laughs) My mom would not be happy because I've been telling everyone this story because it makes me so angry. My mom called me from work and said, Isha, I have been diagnosed with some type of migraine. And I said, oh, you, I said, you went to the doctor today? Because she was in the middle of her work day. And she's like, oh, no, I I found it on Google. I said, mom, don't you ever (laughs) call me and say that you have been diagnosed with something. There's no copay, though. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't. But that's the type of thing people look stuff up and they think they know a diagnosis and they're walking around mm-hmm. diagnosing people and And it's back to that thing we were saying about we want to we want to fix people. We yes. want to make people better. We yes. want it to go back to normal or have some sense of control over it so we don't feel so uncomfortable anymore. And that is not the call. It's not the call for anyone, let alone people of faith right. and leaders in faith communities, right? So I think what we should be doing more going back to the beginning of our conversation is empathy, active listening, and just being supportive of people. We don't always have to know what's right to say, and we don't always have to know what's right to do. But if we are loving our loved ones, then that will mean the most out of anything. I want to thank Isha Caldwell for sharing her work and herself in this conversation. To learn more about Mental Health Connect, visit mhconnect.org. Alter Guild is hosted by Maytahara Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson-Roberts, and Derek Tronsgaard, with edits by Matt and Derek. You can visit our website, alterguild.org. That's A-L-T-E-R and find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast widely. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, go in peace, listen, love, serve, and alter.